Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that gives you the tools to help with your career as a cybersecurity professional, as a leader, and hopefully give you a little bit of a competitive advantage over others, as well as, of course, help you do your job a little bit better. This is G. Mark Hardy, and it's a privilege to be with you. And also, today, we've got a special guest coming up, Brian Murphy of CyberArk. So stick around. I think you're going to really enjoy what he's got to say. Today, we want to talk about minimizing your damage potential before an incident. That is to say, incidents happen. Uh, we know that. We have a process for dealing with that. For those of us who are familiar with the Pickerel approach, preparation, identification, containment, eradication, recovery, lessons learned, we know that there's an entire sequence of events that we're supposed to follow. And as I like to say about that, it's uh, C before E when it comes after I. We need to contain before we eradicate. And we can get a lot of detail about that, but the problem is, is that it's already a bit late in the game if we're dealing with eradication. And containment suggests something's already gone bad. And identification means that we've determined finally that something's going on. And if we take a look at the reports like the Mandy and M trends, we find out that dwell time can be a couple of months on average where there's been an attacker or an intruder slowly, quietly lurking around in there. So I want to focus more, at least in my comments, on the P, the preparation. Because once we get to identify, as they say, something has already hit the fan. Our goal as leaders in cybersecurity is to minimize the risk and the damage and the cost of any response to an incident. Incidents are going to happen. It's part of life. It's not a matter of if, but when. But we want to avoid our career-ending incidents as well as organizational hobbling, crippling, or even ending incidents as well by being able to make sure that we can plan effectively. So my thought is, what if we could shift left, lay in some early controls? Think about it. As we talked about before, identity is a new perimeter, but identity is instantiated in credentials. And the credentials have to be, well, credible to be trustworthy which means that we bind the identity of a credential typically to a human, but it could also be to a process or an application or a service or something like that. But effectively, what we want to be able to do is do that in a strategic way such that we're less likely to have any problems with respect to rights and credentials going forward, and more precisely, we're not going to have a situation where an average user finds himself a spectacular amount of privilege and they get that account compromised. Essentially, what we have to do is focus on need to know and limit access rights to the minimum required for a job. I mean, that sounds normal. It sounds reasonable. And I'm sure we all say we want to do that. But how often do you go actually go back and check? We get a little bit of help from the system. The system will restrict guest accounts for us, which means that if somebody got in as guest, not a lot of damage they can do. User accounts should be permitted access based upon job description and assignment and roles. And when a particular assignment or role is concluded, it makes sense to then go ahead and back out those privileges. Unfortunately, we're often very busy. We don't always get notified when a project or a team ends. Somebody comes by and says, hey, quick, I need access to something. You 
get it to him in an emergency because you're headed off to an important meeting. You never write it down. So think about having a periodic review, being able to do that. But admin accounts or any privileged account represents the golden ticket for attackers. And we need to focus our attention here. One of the great ways to reduce the likelihood of severe damage due to a cyber incident is to limit the reach of privileged accounts. Some of the basic hygiene, no account sharing ever. You never have two or more people using the same admin account. Never have people logging in as root. It breaks the audit trail and there's no way to hold accountability. If you have a domain admin account, here's an idea. Ensure there's no assigned exchange mailbox. I mean, seriously, in my environment, we get a lot of brute force attacks that come in and they're for existing accounts, existing emails. I look at them and I'm not too worried about it. When I see hundreds of attempts coming in for our executives and our officers of our company coming from Eastern Asia, all trying to bang in and log in, brute force style, I don't even consider that an incident. Those are just events. Why? We have multi-factor authentication enabled. They'll never get past. But more importantly, if you don't allow for the same account name for an admin for browsing an email, you create a huge barrier. You'll have to log in as a special account name, do your administrative work, log back out, then log back in again as a normal user. That is a tremendous barrier to an attacker. It means that you're not surfing, you're not browsing, you're not downloading, you're not emailing, opening up attachments while in a privileged status. And that right there is going to give you a tremendous advantage that you normally don't get otherwise. Use different admin passwords on every box. Yeah, I know that's a pain, but if you have LastPass or some other privilege management uh, tool, it's acceptable, it's manageable. When you look at things and the danger that could be done with tools uh, that can scrape passwords out of memory, like Mimikatz, it's one of the things we do in pen testing. We try to go ahead and grab a domain admin password out of memory, and we go, boom, we got an admin password, it works everywhere, and we just go over to the domain controller, boom, game over. If, however, there's a different account password, that's only going to be used on that one box. You'll lose a box, but you don't lose everything. And hopefully you go, your endpoint detection response picks up some of the issues that take place there. Examine your Microsoft tenant for privileged service principal accounts. Now, service principles are identities, and this is Microsoft talking here, is quote, an identity created for use with applications, hosted services, and automated tools to access Azure resources. This access is restricted by the roles assigned to the service principal, giving you control over which resources can be accessed and at which level, end quote. Okay, essentially what they're saying is that if you go through and look at the accounts in there, you will see your privileged accounts. Oh, by the way, you should probably have no more than five of those. And then you may see service principles. I did an audit recently and found a couple of service principles as domain admins. And I checked around and I don't remember creating one and nobody else did. So went ahead and disabled the accounts and nothing broke. By the way, if you have strange accounts on there, don't delete them, disable them. That way you've got information available for auditing and you can check for backups. But recognize in a traditional Microsoft tenant, you may only have 30 days of logs to go back. Less if you're on something like an academic license where you probably only have seven days. Ensure, therefore, that you're looking at your 
information on a regular enough basis that if you spot something a little bit strange, you can then go ahead and investigate it or consider spooling your logs off to the Azure cloud or even an S3 bucket if you want to cross your stream, so to speak, so that you can grab audit logs from farther back. I could go on, but I really want to get to our guest who has really spent a lot of time in the trenches dealing with incidents. So enough about listening to me. Let's go ahead and come over here to our guest speaker. And today it's our pleasure to have Brian Murphy on the podcast. Now, Brian leads the incident response team at CyberArk, and he regularly engages his team post-breach with both customers and prospects to stabilize their environments and review best practices for prevention. So, Brian, it's not like you have a really cool job. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do? Yeah, absolutely, G-Mark. And to start, thanks for having me on your podcast with you. I have the pleasure of, you know, working with customers when they're in the recovery stage and they're they're trying to recover from what happened. And what's really interesting about what we do is that we're able to help the customer recover quicker than they could without our services and, and the, the process that we have for them. What we find is that when the attacker comes in, they have certain access. They're doing certain things with different credentials around the network. And customers struggle with the ability to still maintain a work balance of doing the job while they're fighting the incident. And one of the things we have the pleasure of doing is helping customers to do that so that they can recover their business a little quicker. That's well, kind of interesting. So really, yeah, any of us who've ever as a CISO had to fight an incident, you realize you got to keep the lights on at the same time and you got to keep the plant running and somebody needs their password reset and somebody else needs to go ahead and fix on this, that, or the other thing. So what you find then is that if you get brought in to uh, help make things easier in these response, what are you seeing that is ways to, I guess, instead of help you respond better is to even avoid the situation. So that, the that's the place. name of the game. Uh, prevention is key. We'll, we'll, we'll talk in a little bit about some examples of this. And with all the incidents I've worked, the ones that were really bad ignored certain signals or indicators, ignored certain things they could have done to not necessarily prevent or to keep it from happening 100%, but limiting what happens once they have the certain credentials. The challenge is, is that we're always looking for what's the next uh, big attack. What's the next supply chain attack? What is coming mm -hmm. from the nation states? How are they coming after us? And that is very important. I don't want to diminish it in any way. But what I see a lot of companies do with the, with the mistakes and the prevention is that they do those, uh, those type of tests and those type of attacks, but they forget the basics. And when they do this, they end up being compromised by this generic drive-by or the walk-by ransomware attack, and it's not even a sophisticated attack, yet they've bought all this tech to help them secure those, those solutions. So it's, it's an interesting problem that we have just because we're minimizing staff, we're trying to automate, we're trying to be as agile as possible, but yet we still have to be right 100% of the time, and these attackers are getting to use the same tools we can use, so they're able to be as fast as they need to be to attack us, and, and we have to be able to defend. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a tough challenge. And I know you, you mentioned the word credentials in there, and I think that's, that's key because I don't know of anybody who'd suffered a major breach because they lost a guest <laughs> credential. 
Um, it, it's kind of one of those things where like a penny dropped out of your pocket. Okay, I can live with that. But that's not really where the problems are. Where are we really seeing the danger? What is it that causes the magnitude? Of the, big, the biggest thing I see in, in the line of work that I do is the endpoints. And it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough conversation because everybody says, let's start with the endpoints to manage credentials. Let's, let's do least privilege. Let's do zero trust. All the, all the buzzwords you hear out there. And we need to. The problem is that when you think about really stepping back from what the problem is, it's not enough just to lock that very outer wall that we have. We need to make sure we te- keep the keys of the kingdom safe too. So as we start looking at what we secure, we have to secure the internals of the credentials first, what we have inside our network that's most critical, our, our trade secrets, the accounts we use to keep the manufacturing running, for, existent, for example, those type of credentials, and then start to expand out to the workstations. Because if we start from the workstations first, they could already be inside. If they're already inside, it's, it's not a worthwhile effort for us to do that. So we have to kind of take it from both sides as we do this and not focus solely on one or the other. And this is where it really becomes a team game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you'd mentioned Zero Trust. And anybody who's read the 12th of May White House announcement talks about Zero Trust several times in that document, as we're looking at. And some of that appeared to be a response to the um, Patriot Pipeline problem, but that really wasn't a response. They've right. been working on that for a while. But from your perspective, is uh, is that concept of zero trust, is that going to be the end all? Or there's still going to be problems nonetheless because of the process of, well, if credentials aren't managed correctly, you can still end up being the wrong person. I, I would say zero trust is definitely getting to be a means to an end. Think of it as multi-factor authentication was mm-hmm. for us years ago. I, I like to tell people that work for me, um, cybersecurity is very much like a history lesson. So if you're a history buff and you study history, what do we see happens over time? History generally repeats itself. You see the same things happening in cybersecurity. So we say initially, if you go back you know, years ago, okay, you just log on a system, you do your work. When we had the, uh, the mainframes and things like that, and we said, that's not, that's not enough. Let's do a password. So we put a password on it. We said, that's not good enough. Let's do least privilege. Let's do a guest account. Have you elevate to administrator? Okay, that's not enough. Let's multi-factor you. Let's do this. Let's have a directory. So we're following a pattern that we all know. And this is how we're going through things. And zero trust is the next piece in that pattern. And, and what, we're, what we're really struggling with is that companies have legacy technology that they have to support for whatever reason. And it's not able to keep up with these trends. So while we're moving to zero trust, what do you do to protect the systems that don't support zero trust? That's where companies generally get into a challenge. If you look at the pipeline attack that we were talking about, I don't know if they came out and said explicitly this, but they had an old exchange server that was running with the exchange vulnerabilities on it. Now, those are the challenges that we have where you can... You can figure out that, okay, someone can come in this way. We don't know if they did, but if they had one piece of technology that way for just one application, there could be others that they have in their organization that they still need to secure, even though they're working on, say, a zero trust model or other things to secure the day-to-day operation of the business. 
Yeah, I don't think there's a zero trust package. You put disk one into drive A and you know hit enter and secure your enterprise. And and so what happens using this as an yeah. example, talking about ransomware, is that if organizations are going to get attempt, I mean these attempts are going on all the time, and sometimes they hit. But how do how does an entity avoid this thing going high order? How do you ensure that if somebody does click on Dancing Bears or finds a USB in the parking lot and plugs it in, says, "Oh, I wonder what's on it." that it doesn't take out the whole... So this this goes back to defense in depth. And and I'm glad you asked that question. This is something that my company talks about frequently. And you have your your EDRs and your detection systems that are out there that you want to use, and you should. Uh, But what's interesting is it's not enough just to detect it. We definitely need to detect it. But what we're seeing with ransomware is that it's so automated these days that they don't even have to interact with the systems to gain access and compromise. And to kind of share a little bit of a story about this, I worked an incident, I think it was probably about six months ago, it was fairly recent. And you could see in the logs, we caught the attacker before they deployed the ransomware. And you could see, tried this task, escalating to support level two, that they have a support structure for how they do this when they're working on the systems. And then you have other ones where they just have an automated attack. And if they get it, they just, it just runs its code and it goes. So how can we be better protected against this is that we have to remove the privilege. So if the, if the workstations that people are working from don't have administrative credentials, they don't have administrative access, they can't connect from a workstation to a server with the same account, putting these little gates up is what's going to help us to mitigate it. And we have to think that from the workstation side, if somebody does click a link, I've seen it where they just, they actually went to a legitimate page and clicked on a banner. The banner took them somewhere that downloaded the ransomware. Mm-hmm. That's going to happen. We can't avoid that. That's end user training. We have to have the awareness, but sometimes you accidentally click. But if the system doesn't allow you to have administrative access to download the malware, to allow it to move, now we're able to isolate what happens. We're allowing the EDR systems of the world and that to detect this, to tell us it happened but allowing us to prevent it from going further. So really, it's more than a detect, it's a prevent. What you're talking about is getting or moving left for us as a defender in the attack sequence, because what we're able to do then is structure privileges and uh, rights, etc., in a way that essentially users are getting just what they need, but they're not getting way too much more, which is often And, where and that jumps into, Gmark, the just-in-time conversation. So this is where you start to dovetail mm-hmm. that with zero trust. I don't trust you. I'm only giving you the access you need for this specific amount of time. And, and this is how we're going to start to limit these type of attacks from being that successful. Got it. Now, we've talked about multi-factor authentication and that being sort of in the sequence of things as we move forward. And Absolutely, for admin accounts, that's a, a necessity. I use that for everything that I have that requires sysadmin or domain admin access. Um, but if, for example, someone suspects that there is a theft of a credential, that is to say, we've got some reason to believe. I mean, I've even had calls from people who say, hey, Gmark, I think I just clicked on something or I, fill, I, I logged into download a document, I, and somehow they don't really think that was really Microsoft, though it looked like it. Well, of course, first of all, I tell you know, other CISOs, create a climate of no fear. 
I don't go, hey, hey, or you're in trouble, or this is going on your permanent record. It's like, okay, let's go fix it. And But then what do we do? I mean, what should be the first step when something like that, if there's a suspected- So awareness is key, death? right? So you know, creating that that culture, like you said, to say, hey, I did something, this happened, just letting somebody know so we can fix it is is number one. You know, that, that no fear of retribution. And then from there, you have to start understanding where that credential could go, what it could access. I've seen some of the ransomware be deployed in less than 20 minutes in an organization. So this is not now to scare the listeners. But as you think about it, that's a really fast time so that you get the alert, you get the ticket and whatnot, and things could already be encrypted. It's, it's very quick as to how it can go. So this is where if we understand that we limit where the account can go, we, we know the pattern in which the account can, you know, talk to systems one, two, and three, one, two, and three contain these accounts, we can start to figure out what we may have to rotate or watch a little closer to make sure that there's not uh, nefarious traffic happening there. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of the concern that we see, other than just kind of an endpoint ransomware, okay, fine, that's, you know, your box blows up. But the real damage occurs when there's lateral movement. When an attacker gets onto one device and then moves from the next to the next to the yes. next and things such as that. Um, th- thoughts on things that could be done to help reduce that So risk. this starts to speak to the credentials and what we call credential boundaries. Uh, so, so again, I, I want to give examples here. So we'll send a salt and pepper them in here. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, had, sure. I had one, for example, where an attacker was able to get domain admin access. And how they got it was really interesting because... They compromised a workstation, and this is speaking to the credential, the credential boundaries we need to have. That user had a support ID, but that user used his support ID to access servers. So the attacker was able to grab a support ID from a workstation, move laterally to a server, because we allowed the credential on the workstation and the server to then move to where they found a server that had domain admin credentials connected to it, took those and connected to the domain controller. So very quick process, few servers, boom, they were into domain admin to do what they wanted to do. When you look at ransomware and what we're really seeing in the industry, I think the, the least common denominator that we're seeing is service accounts are what they're after because every organization I've worked in recent memory generally has at least one service account in domain admins. And as a best practice, there should be no service accounts there. Mm-hmm. And this is the one account they're looking for because they know the password's not going to be changed. They know that they can use that account and hide because no one's monitoring how it's used. That these are the things that we have to watch out for in the industry. Yeah, I'll I'll use an example. I'll try not to, I won't mention the vendor name, but essentially what happened was is that we were told that we were to implement this particular solution. And they said, well, we need domain admin credentials. And like, okay, fine, I'll set you up with right. MFA. Well, we don't do MFA. What do you mean? Well, we just we just have an office, and it's whoever's on duty at that time. And I took a look at what they're doing, and I said, I see what you're doing. You need access to emails, and you need to go ahead and populate a database and extract information. But you don't need domain admin for this stuff. And uh, we're, we're back and forth on it. And then, okay, finally, it's like, okay, well, CEO says do it. You do it. Right. You never want to be the person getting in the way. But then when I told my IT guy, I said, okay, every day I want you to turn off one of these privileges until you get down to this absolute minimum, which is what I think they need. And if they holler, I'll deal with it. You know what? I never said a word. 
and the the system ran just fine. And and this has happened more than once where somebody comes along and they like, well, oh, uh, you know, we need global administrator rights to your uh, yeah. everything. And it's like, no, you don't. So what's what's a good response to something like that? And are there any tools or capabilities out there that uh, you know give us, if you will, a working uh, capability or at least a fighting chance to support the business without handing over the keys to the kingdom? This is a great one. Uh, I'll, I'll share with you one example of where what you did wouldn't have worked. For example, with one vendor I worked with specifically, which was they had a service account in domain admins because the application did a check mm -hmm. and said, if it's not in domain admins on check, it will crash the application and not start, even though they didn't need domain admin access. So this is, this is where we need our vendors and our appliances that are out there to figure out what least privilege looks for their system and document it, allow us to do it. And what we've been successful with is the app integrations that we do we challenge those application teams to say, do you really need this permission? How about just this? What about if we gave you just these permissions? Mm -hmm. And we, we start from a baseline and work our way up. When you start running into problems, you over-permission like you did GMARC and you tune it down. That's what we have to do. A, a lot of the vendors out there now are starting to supply this documentation to the customers to do it. The challenge becomes, if you don't have that documentation, time to value. Is a, is a real challenge for the uh, the users because as they're configuring the system, they have to figure out now how long is it going to take for me to do this test? What am I going to break? Am I going to make my SLA of when I have to have this product deployed? And it, and it becomes this trade-off that we have to work from. And unfortunately, as much as we want security to be the priority, let's be honest, security is always seen as a roadblock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you can never be the the person who is saying no. You always have to be the person to say how, and and you say how also by quantifying the of risk that's involved. Over time, we start to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And you mentioned things that have been some great ideas. Uh, anything else from an example from post breach that we find from prior incidents that are good for teams to record or based upon your work, because you've been seeing so many of these things, kind of general bits of wisdom that could be applied throughout. Uh, yeah, there's a couple action items say do now within your organizations. I would say number one is look at every single account in your domain admins group. See how many of them are service accounts? Start kicking them out. I guarantee you the app teams will tell you the application will not function without domain admin access. However, when any incident response company comes in to do this, that's the first thing they do is they remove them and the applications work just fine. I've run into one in the example I gave you that, that didn't work with, <laughs> but that's the exception. Mm -hmm. The second is service account credentials are really challenging. So just rotate every one of them. If you rotate them once in a year, you're far better off than keeping a, a 15, 16-year-old password that's out there with your service accounts. So if we can do that, that's a great start to help to mitigate this. Then the, then the last thing I'll leave you with here is any of these privileged accounts we have, like you talked about a support account, uh, different ones that people will use to access servers or workstations. If we can do least privilege, that's great. But also make sure we put the controls around there to rotate those accounts. One of the things I'm seeing is fatigue of the users where credential rotation 
having to remember a password, getting locked out, MFA, all these different controls are wearing on our users from being able to do their job. So we're doing things such as don't rotate a credential for a password change for six months. So the user can keep a password for a longer time. And depending on who you talk to, you'll hear conflicting information about that, if you should do it or you shouldn't. And I would vote for you should if, and this is the the caveat to it, if you have other controls around it, if you have detective controls, if you have the MFA in place and other checks that it's not just a password you're using to authenticate with, you may be okay to do that. But if that password is the only way you're connecting to your systems, we, we really have to be diligent about rotating those frequently. Yeah, the, uh, the government pub on that is the NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, Special Pub 800-TAC-63B is in Bravo. And they had changed that. Originally, uh, the guy, Bill Burr, who had wrote those requirements many years ago, said, oh, you have to have uppercase, lowercase number of special characters, change them so frequently. And he subsequently recanted on that. He, he said, yeah, I'm so sorry that I put you through all that because it kind of really comes down to an old XKCD cartoon of correct horse battery yes. stable. I think we've all seen that one. And some people talk about XKCD 936 compatible passwords. We even know, in fact, I saw a car today at a license plate was XKCD 137. And I had to go look that one up to see what it was. And I'm, I'm getting the joke and my wife's not getting it. It's like, trust me, it's, it's, it's a geek thing. And, but what we find then is you're right. Users, if you push them too hard, they're going to end up writing things down or they're just going to put a one then a two or a three after their password. And that really doesn't add any value. But as you had said, by being able to carefully look at how do we scope out what somebody can do in terms of what their privileges are is a big deal. Um, obviously, in terms of things like service principal accounts, where you know, why is this thing in here and what's it doing and does it have... Uh, global admin rights on a service principle. I, I, I've yeah, seen yes, those you do. in some instances before and I, and I turn them off and nothing breaks. And it's like, okay, uh, did you put that in there? Did you put it? And where do they come from? And, and so it seems like there's a recurring hygiene that needs to be done to go through there and clean it up. Um, not to kind of take away your thunder, because I know I'm trying to do an interview with you, but I, I want to run this idea past you. So one of the guys I work with who works in a bank, and financial institutions have a requirement that everybody right. has to take a vacation. You ha- literally have to leave And the it has to be five days consecutively so that someone else can do your job yes. for that week. Yep. Yeah. And also, if you had some <laughs> scam going that either you got to stop the scam or they notice like, wait a minute, our power usage went way down while this guy was gone. And that went way back up again. I, I wonder why the meter's pegging out when he's in the server room at night. And in any case... This is what he said that I liked. He said, when people come back from their mandatory five-day break, we start all over like they're a new employee in terms of allocating their privilege. Because over the course of a year, as you get added to teams, get added to projects, you start to accrue rights and privileges that you might not need longer term. We're very good at provisioning privilege when we need to, because it's got to get done. But if you're running down the hallway and someone says do it and then you write a little note and then it goes through the washing machine or something, it doesn't get deprovisioned. And so one way of course is to just use that annual to, to redo everything. What other thoughts in terms of that? Are there um, you know, better ways to do that than just some human trying to remember stuff? I mean, what, what's out there? You guys have got some really great 
tools and capabilities. Absolutely. And, and the first thing you need is you need uh, an identity governance tool to help with this because this can automate that workflow so you don't have to do it on a day-to-day. Mm-hmm. But aside from, say, a, a paid solution to do this that's out there, there's also free tools. Uh, for example, you know you can, mm-hmm. you can look at things like uh, we offer a tool called Discovery and Audit. We use, we use the DNA for short. You have something called Skyarc as well. It's available on GitHub that you can use to discover privileged accounts that exist on your network and get you an idea. Uh, a story I have on that for the privileged accounts, we ran this tool for one of our customers and I had the CISO and all the security folks. So about five or six people in a the room. They said, run the scan. We're going to all review it together and we're going after the top five people in that list because they should not be doing this, right? That we're going to hit you with the stick. And we ran the scan, came back. We opened the room, we opened it up. And as soon as we opened it up, guess who the top five people on that list were? <laughs> exactly. So you see them frantically typing in that. And they're like, oh, that's my account. I'm going to change it. I'm going to change it real quick. I'm going to do this. And they go, can we run that scan again? So this is where you know understanding what's out there in our environment is, is what we need to do. And we, we don't need to do it from the standpoint that I want to point the finger at the bad practice that someone's doing. We need to do it as an educational process to say, we're going to keep looking at this. And if we find something, we're going to fix it. We're going to be proactive and preventative about this instead of saying, you're doing something wrong. I'm, I'm going to come after you for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so really what it comes down to then is we started in our conversations talking about regular accounts versus privilege accounts. It's really all about the privilege account and managing all that and making sure that uh, essentially a compromised credential can't run throughout the entire enterprise because you've got keys of the kingdom laying around, uh, but rather they're, they're much better controlled. And so a structured approach toward doing that gives us a much better um, chance of, if you will, avoiding, let alone surviving. It is. And, and with that, it's also having that strong authentication where you can. And then after we have the strong authentication, mm-hmm. if we can isolate what's being used in the different locations, that really helps as well. So an example here is if I want to use domain admin credentials, I shouldn't be running those from the workstation I check my email with. That's never a good idea, right? But we see it, we see it happen. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you we're in the year 2021. We're, we're kind of just, you know, crawling out of COVID here towards the end. And I will still work with customers where the domain admin account is the one they log into their workstation with and they're checking email and surfing the web. You would think that's something that we got rid of 10 years ago, but it still happens today. And yet what you, know, what you do with your business at CyberArch is you provide tools and capabilities so these things don't become mysteries for CISOs and others trying to wonder what's hiding yeah. under the covers. Right. Our, our goal is to show you what's there and then take, take away mm-hmm. the credentials. And when I say take them away, we don't want you to have to manage them. We don't want you to have to think about what you need to access something. You just... Log in with the credential you use your workstation with, you click a button, you say go for our product, and it handles and brokers everything on the back end for you. So if I can take the risk away from the end user, it puts them in a more confident state to do their job, and we're also mitigating risk across your organization. Got it. Now, I know you've encountered an awful lot of stuff over your time there, and one of the things I always enjoy are war stories, and I'm sure you've got plenty of them, but you've got, a, got like one or two that you think would be really relevant that 
uh, people could listen to and then perhaps gain some wisdom? Absolutely. I'll start with one where the customer had someone click on a website and they clicked on a website and it was, let's just say google.com. It wasn't a malicious site at all. And as they were there, they had an advertisement come. They clicked on the advertisement. The advertisement took them somewhere else, which then downloaded a piece of malware. The malware ran on the workstation. The malware then scanned for accounts, did its thing, moved laterally, was you know passing hashes and, and moving from system to system, and ultimately landed on the domain controller. When the, it was on the domain controller, it tried to install Mimikatz on there. And this is when the security team picked it up. The security team picked it up at this point. And as they were able to do that, they were able to quickly respond, block it, stop it from doing anything else. But since it was on the domain controller, they didn't know what accounts were compromised. So they started the whole process of rotating all the Active Directory credentials within the organization. Now, that's what happened technically. But what was going on here with this attack is that the drive-by they clicked on was trying to deploy ransomware. So it was looking for that domain admin credential to then deploy it throughout the environment to take the environment down. Now, this, this flavor of ransomware that they were working with is not the ones that we see that are doing the extortion. This was just the, I want to be the nuisance type. Mm-hmm. It's more the, uh, the older version, let's call it, of ransomware versus what we're seeing day-to-day today. So that, yeah. that's one example for you there, Gmart. And uh, so being able to keep that from going out. Of course, Mimikatz being able to go ahead and grab passwords out of memory. And really what you're looking for is a domain admin or some privileged uh, password up in memory. Um, and granted on an endpoint, we got EDRs and things like that are looking for something like that. But again, really what I think it comes down to is making sure that uh, we've got those privileges tightly controlled. And as you'd said before, a couple of times, make sure that you've gone through and you don't have service accounts laying around that have all these extra uh, privileges. And as I had suggested, do a review on a regular basis and we can do so. And so from that perspective, I think you've got kind of a recipe for being able to help reduce risk in the organization. Um, Other other thoughts and things like that in terms of like an incident and stuff like that. um, Do you see any common mistakes that take place in incidents? I do. Things like that. I'll I'll start with the first. uh, The first mistake I see is when it comes to hiring and building a staff. A lot of people will shy away from people who have worked an incident, and they really need to say that person should go to the front of the line. And the reason is they've been in the trenches. They know what to do. They can advise you when you're in real time. And for whatever reason, any other field, this is the process we would follow. In cybersecurity, we don't. We almost look at them as a failure of their job when they weren't even the ones at fault. (laughs) That's a a really good point. I mean, I spent a career in the military, and you would love to have somebody with combat experience or who has been up against a situation like that, regardless of... What happened? I mean, if they're still alive, they, they've right. done something right. But yeah, that, it's, it's an excellent point. So I don't think that we should, and, and I'll accept that, that you, you don't turn away people who have been in organizations that had gone through some perhaps high publicity. But, but I bet you if we, if we list, look at your listeners here and they were to go back and look at some of the resumes they got in these things, not, not pointing fingers here, we, we all sort of have that bias to say, I don't want this person because they came from this company mm-hmm. or they, they were there at the time that this breach happened. 
And it, it's just really interesting to see how this industry in this field tries to stay away from them. So one of the things we try to do is if anybody worked in a, in a company where they had an incident around that time or experience with it, we actually gravitate towards them because they're some of the ones with the great ideas of how you can solve these things. So if any of our listeners are out there who are in that exact circumstance and say like, yeah, I was at such and such or such and such, and I really kind of am hiding that as if somehow it's a, it's a badge of shame. Uh, how do you broach that with a prospective employer? I mean, you can't really lie about it, but it's really more of a matter of convincing somebody because typically there's two people you have to convince HR. So you can go ahead and talk to the tech interview, but ultimately it's a person you're going to work for that's hiring you. Uh, what are the, as you brought a couple points, what would you recommend for, as you say, someone who's listening, who said, I need to, I really want to do something, but I'm worried about it. I, I would own it. On that? And what I mean by that is instead of putting okay. in worked at the company, I, I ran support or I, I ran this security tool. I would start to list out in my mm -hmm. job description that, this was my job description, but also worked held this role in the the incident itself to show the competency you have in these type of situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's getting to the point where we tell people it's not a matter of if, but when your organization has a breach, and almost it's to the point now it's not a matter of if, but when the organization you're working at goes through some sort of event or incident. And if we disqualified everybody, eventually there'd be nobody standing. In a way, we're kind of handing the bad guys a, uh, a special cannon to say, here, shoot out all the best performers right. so that there's nobody left except uh, you know the second, third, fourth string. And then everything else goes in a little bit easier. Um, yeah, good insight on that. Any other thoughts that you'd like to? Yeah, I think uh, another one I have is when you find yourself in a security incident, we, we generally think of it as I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to tackle this, this incident that's happening. When in actuality, you're usually into your midday or your day's just winding down and this happens. As it happens, we have to think of two things. One, we need rotations so people can take breaks. What we've, I, I can't tell you how many times I've gone 36, 48 hours, people are up trying to work on incidents and you talk to them and it's just, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it, got it. But they're not hearing what you're saying. So that's one. We really need to be con conscious of that. And the good CIOs and CISOs I see, as soon as an incident hits, they're thinking about that day one right away. Right? That, that's one definite takeaway there. The second one is while you're working that incident and you're getting things going, you have to work in pairs. So what I see is they say, John, go over here and work on this. That's great. John's the expert. John needs to do that. But John cannot be the one to report the status updates back. So we need someone doing work and we need someone doing communication. And if we can pair them together as we work these incidents, you're going to find that the, the communication is better. We have more updates. We know what's going on. And we actually get stuff done quicker. Now you tie that to the rotation and our resources are more effective. So now we can let John sleep for eight hours, get rest, come back in and maybe work for 10 hours, 12 hours after that so that we can start recovering versus him working 36 hours straight. Yeah, so these are a bit more of marathons than they are just sprints. Actually, it's a, it's a marathon yep. of sprints in a way, and uh, we've got to be able to do that. Well, great thoughts. Hey, hey Brian, this, this has been really cool. So, uh, again, thank you for your time, for coming on to our show. Uh, Brian Murphy with CyberArk. If you, if you like what he had to say, go on over and take a look at his company's website, CyberArk.com. They've got some great stuff out there. And uh, this is 
As always, G. Mark Hardy here with our CISO Tradecraft. We thank you for listening in and being part of our audience. And as always, go ahead and share with others. Let us know if you're not following us, go ahead and follow us either on LinkedIn or just right on our website. And uh, we will keep you up to date with the latest and greatest to help you out with your job and your life and your career. So until next time, uh, stay safe and keep doing great stuff.